Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Heck yeah, you are. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, together again for the first time after... With our pastries. Yes, your bag your bag of pastry rather than a bag of meat. Together we represent... A bag of pastries is way more up my alley. Together we represent a balanced diet, but it's good to be back together after... You had the great Eli in here, and then we were remote, so it's nice to be back at at Wretch HQ, Wretch Q, together again for, I love the fall. I'm not alone in this. I love the spring and the fall. I love the spring and the fall here, but I particularly love that campaign season. So I'm. it's always campaign season for every for everybody in politics and for me because the 30 seconds after midterm elections end, the quadrennial begins and vice versa, right? But now we're past Labor Day and we're at the point where the presidential election cycle is really underway. And it feels, as Chuck Mangione would say, it feels so good. I have a early style section question before we jump in. I'm ready. Does one... Oh, you're buttoned. Well, now... It's a good, it's a good, this is, this is a good TV question. Like, do I unbutton my blazer just because I'm sitting, but I kind of want to feel held in. The first rule is, of course, you want to be sitting. If you have a long jacket, you want to be sitting. I don't have a long jacket jacket. tail so that it holds the collar down in the back and you want to have your shoulders back. Now, how does the jacket fit? Is it a loose jacket? No. Is it a tight jacket? Yes. So... This is this jacket fits me correctly and it's buttoned because it covers my ponderous girth by being buttoned. But you're you have no girth to cover, so I think you have a lot of freedom to choose. You have freedom we have freedom <laughs> like to Milton, be you Milton and me. Freedom. That's right. Milton Friedman. That's just free to choose over here. Okay. Free to choose your own blazer situation. All right. Chris, I actually couldn't believe how much chatter this was getting on the you know, I keep like a TV on in my office. Could not believe how everyone was talking about this. But David Ignatius, this is our front page, by the way. I feel like regular listeners must know, they know. What we're doing our front page. David Ignatius writing in the Washington Post that President Biden should not run again. And he made a funny argument for that. They are so good. So good. They have just accomplished everything they set out to do. He says, it's painful to say that, given my admiration for much of what they have accomplished. But if he runs, he risks undoing his greatest achievement, which was stopping Trump, meaning he'd lose. And he says he would carry two big liabilities. He's too old. And as a result, he's too old. So voters would focus on his running mate. Mm -hmm. And so... They should step off the stage. But he basically says Biden has just been so, so wonderful. Well, I mean, what's he going to say? Well, so my theory 
of this column was that this is a bad case for Biden not running again, but it was written to persuade. Right. I mean, uh, David Ignatius is not going to come out and say, you suck, go home, because the, he's not trying to persuade Biden as much as he's trying to persuade elite Democrats to put the pressure on. And he even tries to what why don't more people write this piece and why don't more people say this stuff openly? Because they don't want to be hated by the elite, you know, the elite and, and, uh, and why, why morning would, Joe chatter crowd. Why would why would Democrats hate them for saying it? Because uh, here's the line from Ignatius. Biden's age isn't just a Fox News trope. And of course, as soon as Ignatius wrote this, right wing media went like, I, you know, on Newsmax every, and every corner of the right wing media, David Ignatius, whose uh, policy prescriptions are universally ignored by, by these same audiences, say the powerful, well-connected, important David Ignatius says so. So he knew that in saying this, what would happen and what would be said. But he did it anyway. And I, I, I think this is the job of a opinion writer and the job of a journalist, which is to say to people, I'm not on your, t- I, I, you and I may be aligned, but my job isn't to tell you what you want to hear. My job is to tell you something true. And I think Ignatius did that here. The editing, you're editing yourself because you're afraid of what people on the other side are going to say is hard to avoid. And I think it, they deserve credit when they, when they do. It It is an it is a pushback on the White House's. Oh yeah. Oh, he's just full of energy. Oh, um, he's full of energy. he can ride a train like no one. I mean, he is uh, he he's incredible. And going a little bit out of order, just to mention, this column came after Biden's press conference in Vietnam, which I I'm going to bed. He said I watched from beginning to end. It wasn't that long. It was about 25 minutes. Yeah, and. His announcement at the end that he was going to bed wasn't the only bizarre thing about it. It came on the heels of there was a digression about climate change yeah. where he went into his favorite quotes from a John Wayne movie and he said... Dog-faced um, pony soldiers. Yeah. The climate deniers are like dog-faced pony soldiers, you know, the quote, and and this, that, and the other. And there were times when he was hard to hear and It was and like mumbling. something captured on the camera of an Uber late at night driving someone home who had stayed too long, who had been overserved. It was uncomfortable to watch. And then he had a note card from which he was supposed to be reading the names yeah. of reporters that he was supposed to call on. And he had a lot of difficulty reading the names, finding the people. It was uncomfortable to watch. And he's obviously a guy who's not at the top of his game. And the White House incinerating anybody who suggests otherwise it does it does remind me and i've said this before of democrats in 2022 telling voters that critical race theory is a myth it's not there your kids actually aren't defund the police doesn't mean defund the police when everybody can see what's happening in their kids classrooms even if it's not the you know the sophisticated legal theory of critical or or as we talked about with inflation right People know what inflation is, even if it doesn't meet the textbook definition. The New York Times comes in, and I thought, when I read this, it's a Michael Shear piece. The headline is Biden's news conference in Vietnam ignites his opponents. And when I read this, I just thought, this is the sort of piece that 
conservatives hold up and say, this is why we hate the New York Times. This is why we don't trust the New York Times, because it was just so tendentious and and dishonest. And Shear writes, it was far from the first time the president's rivals have used his words and actions to undercut him, especially on social media platforms that do not emphasize the context or background for an event. And what was interesting to me about the piece is like the main actors in the piece aren't Biden who embarrassed himself on stage, but the opponents. No, it was uh, that, there, the was a, there was a Republicans pounce. And he says, former President Donald J. Trump routinely delivered rambling, often nonsensical speeches and news conferences. He ranted about eagles killed by windmills and told fake stories about the U.S. military running out of ammunition. By that standard, Mr. Biden was more capable. And Shear says that conservative media pounced on this. But in reality, what had happened that day, that's true, of course, like the right was all over this. But in reality, it was a CNN story that really got the White House going about this. Mm -hmm. And so CNN wrote about this saying that Biden had stumbled on the stage in Vietnam and a White House spokesman tweeted at the CNN reporter calling him a desk jockey because he was writing the story from Washington. He wasn't in Hanoi in person. And that was what angered the White House. They expect conservative media to do this. They expect the mainstream media to be on side in the way that the New York Times was. And what had pissed them off was the CNN story. But Sheer doesn't get to that at all. If I was a Democrat, I would hate the way that People did not talk about what a goofus Donald Trump is, right? That the Biden stories would not include the, which is what Democrats would want, right? Every time that Biden was mentioned for being old and doddering, that there would be, if I was a Democrat, I'd want the next sentence to say, meanwhile, his opponent, uh, his likely opponent next year is loco, right? He's an unhinged goofus. And that's what I would want. But you don't get the when you're the president the, the incumbency has extraordinary advantages but the disadvantages the the advantages there's only one president at a time the disadvantages there's only one president at a time and when the president has a weird press conference in Vietnam that is different than when the leader for the republican nomination has a bad interview or says something weird. And you can't contest you there is such a thing as over contextualization. And they're different also. And Andrew Sullivan made this point in a wonderful column where he said Biden shouldn't run again. Yep. And he said <laughs> Biden seems old, tired, and out of it in the way old people are. And Trump has the frenzied energy of a crazy person. Right. And it's totally true. They're di- like they're nobody looks at Trump and says he just really seems too old for this. No. He seems crazy. He seems crazy. <laughs> so here's what here's Edward Isaac Dover writing uh, for CNN on this. Even as some prominent party leaders privately wonder if Biden should pull out of running, aides to the president point the blame in part to the media for what they view as validating concerns about Biden's age. They're too hostile to Biden. And about Republican claims of Hunter Biden's corruption by covering those concerns, despite what they argue is a lack of evidence. And this goes to the memo that was circulated by the White, uh, House, by the White House about covering impeachment. How, how dare you? How dare you cover? And Republicans do this a lot more than Democrats, but Democrats do it, too. Because you have a problem that the media is covering does not always make it the media's fault, right? Hostile, uh, we want 
aggressive adversarial coverage from the media and the the idea that the administration can shame news outlets into not talking about how things are. And you and I have talked about this many times, saying, and this is what Democrats say or have said, Biden's the best we can do. It's too risky to have an open primary in this situation, and he's not going to step aside anyway. So we're just going to have to gut it out and do it with Biden. And they talk themselves into it and they get there. And then Biden is Biden. And they say, oh, can we really do it again? And then they're going to have to talk themselves back into doing this again and again and again. And much like for Republicans nominating Trump, you have to do it. And it takes months and months and months to do it. If you could teleport, if both parties could teleport to general election to to today, a year from now, they would both do it, right? They would say, okay, we'll just take the front runners and we'll just go do it. But the months and months and months of living it out with Donald Trump and Joe Biden will have effects on what voters think and how they see things. And, you know, I I think that as consensus forms among Democratic elites about the real peril of having Joe Biden as the nominee, I'm increasingly open to the possibility that he could step aside. I think the White House's efforts to bully the mainstream media and the press corps that covered them have been extraordinarily effective. Because unlike with the Trump administration, where the press did not want to be liked by those people, did not want to get along oh. by them, this press, these are the people they spend time with. They do want to be liked and respected by the communications folks in the Biden White House. And I think that their attack is is effective. It is effective when they humiliate them on Twitter, go after them on Twitter. And I think by and large, they have gotten uh, a lot of the coverage that they want. And but wouldn't you, um, wouldn't by you the agree way, that this is why the Ignatius column is yes, significant? Yes. Because once you get enough people that you can say, OK. You know, yes. Look. And his goal was to be effective, not right. to make the best possible. Arg- arg- it was meant to persuade, not to make the best argument. To your point. And, and I will say Trump's bullying of the press became a storyline, in part because Trump was so public about it. Biden's bullying of, of the press is not a reported storyline of this administration. And also, of course, Trump did the opposite. He was sucking up in private, bullying yep. in public, whereas Biden is, do- is doing the opposite. Dave Weigel, writing at Semaphore, <clears throat> makes a really good point. Headline, in books, Biden is an energetic leader. Too bad nobody reads them. And here he's talking about the Frank- Franklin Four book and other, the long game strategy that <clears throat> the administration and the campaign are playing to shape and burnish Biden's image. And Weigel's point is, <clears throat> it doesn't, in terms of shaping the, the, the election, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Next, Chris. Go ahead. I was just going to say, we have, we turn to the Republicans. And we have, and I very much look forward to watching this, and I haven't. So I don't think it's actually aired yet in full. It, it will air today. Megyn Kelly's interview with Donald Trump. Let's, and we'll see, do they make nice? Let's let's take a listen. Okay. Fire Anthony Fauci uh, was because he'd been there for a long time, that you would have taken heat, that it would have created a firestorm, quoting your words. Then for the first time in May... I also said I didn't listen to him too much. I'm getting there. But then in in May, you started saying, well, he's a civil servant, so I couldn't technically. 
The truth is, though, not only did you not fire Fauci, who is loathed by many, many, millions yeah. of Republicans in particular, but also some Democrats. By the way. You yeah. made him a star. You made him a star. This is the criticism of you, that you made him the face of the White House coronavirus task force. You think so? That he was at every presser, that he was running herd for the administration on COVID, and that you actually gave him a presidential commendation before you left office. Wouldn't you like a do-over on that? Uh, I don't know who gave him the commendation. I really don't know who gave him the commendation. Presidential I have commendation. One went I know. off the mark. Somebody Miller, probably. Who who gave him a presidential? Who 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 was it? I I don't who. I guess it was the president. Maybe. I mean, he had mm -hmm. the best people. He had the best. I don't people. know which of the best people. He had the put best that people. paper in front of him. I lo I love this. I've only watched these clips. We're gonna watch the whole thing, and we'll uh, we'll but report I, back I, on was, our thoughts was, next the, week. These but... clips are so good, and couple things. Number one, Donald Trump is bad at interviews. Uh, he was bad with Brett Baer. He's bad here. I think back to the Jonathan Swan interview. When Trump has to do a serious interview with a journalist who marshals facts, Trump is bad. And I am reminded of the basement, the, why basement campaigns are good. So Biden had a basement campaign in 2020. Trump is having a courthouse campaign for 2024. He's not available. His campaign is his legal defense. His legal defense is his campaign. He sits down for very few interviews of any kind of substance. So you see here why. Number two, this is the Megyn Kelly Donald Trump interview that I've wanted to see for years, right? I, I, I We haven't seen the rest of it. I don't know what else is in it. But at her best, my friend and former colleague is just a top-notch interviewer because she brings her prosecutorial powers as an attorney. She marshals the facts. She does this stuff. And good good on her. The other thing, when you say Trump is bad at interviews, and we've touched on this a little before, he thrives on hostility. Right. And he cannot portray Megan as a hostile actor. He did in 2016 when she was at Fox. But when a when an ostensibly friendly interviewer right. sits down with him and she's not being hostile there. And she's, she's she's developed a huge following on the right. Totally. And same with Brett, when he sits down with Trump, they're not he can't say these guys are fake news. And I think there's a lot of power in that. And Trump thrives on sitting down with CNN, doing a CNN town hall. In the same way, Ron DeSantis has thrived on sitting down with these Thrive mainstream. Is a strong word. Well, he thrived in the back yeah, yeah, and forth yeah. pressers in Tallahassee, yeah. taking questions from mainstream reporters. And I think it would be more challenging for these guys to sit down. If Ron DeSantis were to sit down with conservative press right now, I think well, that he, would be a he tough Well, he sits interview. down. So Trump and DeSantis both will sit down with cuckoo birds, right? They're happy to do the fringe like kind of Newsmaxy stuff that is, you know, that those are easy. And as you say... Hostile interviews are easy, too, right? Yep. You just say, oh, you, you suck. No, you suck. Blah, 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 blah. A sincere, tough question with evidence to back it up, that's very hard. So here you see why Donald Trump does not do interviews anymore and why he is not debating, right? This is not, this is not a guy who you want to put on a debate stage where he's going to get tough questions. Uh, you want to give him either, as you say, uh, overtly hostile media or only friendly media. Chris, we've talked about this topic before, but now there is a big Washington Post oh. piece by my friend Ben Terrace, headline Tim Scott's girlfriend, 
The unmarried Republican presidential candidate doesn't like talking about his new relationship very much, but he is talking about it. I got I got to say, we talked a long time ago about Ben Terrace's question longer ago where he asked Tim Scott, an adult man, whether he was a virgin. And this story is a lengthy rationale for why interest into Tim Scott's romantic life is not purient. And the author at the outset lays out, yeah, I know. I know that, you know, it's bad. But I wondered, thought bubble, would it be right to explore this? Let's explore whether we should explore this question. And then goes on at extraordinary length. And the part of it that I think is the most unfair. So is Tim Scott gay? Not that there's anything wrong with that. But is Tim Scott gay? Just asking questions. A lot of people say Tim Scott's not gay. And so, you know, whatever. It's cool, though, if he is. I I was reminded of what Hillary Clinton said about Barack Obama, whether Barack Obama was a Muslim. And she was asked by 60 Minutes, do you believe Barack Obama is a Christian? And she said, well, he says he is. Uh, You know, I I guess that's right, that he says he's a Christian. I certainly allow that it is legitimate inquiry for voters to say, okay, what's your story? And it's unusual for a person in politics to be 59 years old and never married, right? And he provides the context here about you have to go back to Grover Cleveland, and this is not something in in, in this age of families as props in politics that we see very much. But I just I I found the and I found the whole thing saddening to read at this length. And I it, it, it bummed me out. I actually really liked it. OK. I liked it because one of my frustrations when I was reporting more was that I felt like there was all this behind the scenes stuff that happened, whether it was at the White House or in politics, that actually reporters never shared with the public. And I thought this piece did a really nice job of bringing that into public view, which is like all of this opposition peddling and how those conversations go with reporters. And then I thought that he did a nice job of exploring, like, do voters care about this or not? And frankly, do donors care? Do voters care? Are people curious about this? And Tim Scott does reference my girlfriend. I've heard him speak and no, make reference to it. it so yeah. I thought it was very well done. And it touched on a subject that, frankly, I'm curious about. Like, what is going on with this guy? Who is his girl? Does he have a girlfriend? Who is his girlfriend? And it is sort of weird that he refers to the girlfriend. You, you kind of don't know what's going on. Talk about a high-pressure courtship, by the way. I know. Which is, we're dating, and I'm going to go public with her and this relationship if we intend to get married. No pressure, honey. Just we'll just see. We'll just see how it goes. But if I introduce you to anybody, it means that we're getting married and that you're running to be the first lady of the United States. Let's go. And I thought for people looking to understand how Washington and campaigns work, how the campaigns try to leverage this sort of thing against each other. And then like acknowledging people are curious about this. I frankly am. You may not be, but I, I, but I am. And I was curious about it. Tim Scott, who I like a lot and think is wonderful. It, I, I really liked it. The oppo laundering bothered me because. It, but I liked him being but, open about but it. But that's the thing. Even if you are meta oppo laundering, you're still oppo laundering. I, I didn't want to give credence to these rumors that Tim Scott is a gay. Why would I do that? But then I thought, hmm, 
maybe I should ex- explore these questions about the way that campaigns dump opposition well, research. And in the end, it's like uh, people are people have whispered that I kn- people do whisper it. And, and that like that is a D.C. thing that hasn't reached outside. I thought that that was, in, you know, I I, I, was, I, I, I I like my opposition like I like my coffee straight. Okay. Right. Just just if you're going to if you're going to dump oppo. Don't puff out word clouds to explain why this is a journey that you're on. Just say, people say Tim Scott's gay, but that's okay. But we asked 50 people whether or not Tim Scott is a gay dude. That's, I think, poor form. I liked it. All right. Ben, you know who your friend is here on Next Day and Wretches. <laughs> and everyone should read it and let us know what you think about it. Speaking of a piece I also loved, but Chris, I suspect you love too. Oh, was, this was excellent. Uh, Sean piece oh, yeah. in New York Magazine, where he sat down with Walter Isaacson and turned the lens on him. Walter Isaacson, of course, the former editor-in-chief of Time, Ma- Time Magazine, the former president of CNN, the former... He's been president of freaking everything. The former president of the Aspen Institute or CEO of the Aspen Institute, whatever it is. And, and he writes The uh, Journalist and the Billionaire. And he has a bit about Michael Lewis in here that's wonderful. Sorry. This was, there were a few bits that I loved. And Sean is amazing at pulling these anecdotes out of pieces. So he go he goes to New Orleans where Walter Isaacson lives and goes to dinner with him and writes, also at our table is a prim, polite, and politically connected uptown New Orleans woman in a floral dress whose name is Ann Milling, a real steel magnolia, Isaacson calls her. She tells him she's not so sure about his latest subject. I just don't like his values, she says with exquisite disdain. You may not like certain aspects of what he tweets, Isaacson tells her, but he has sent up this year so far more mass to orbit than all countries and all companies combined. He has created a car company that's worth as much as all nine other car companies combined. That's great, she shoots back. I admire that, Walter. But now I tell you what, his values are not my values, so there you go. But have you gotten a rocket to Mars, he asks. I don't give a hoot about a rocket to Mars. Isaacson smiles and sips his rye. Ever since he started this book, he has heard the same sorts of complaints from many in his circle. That Musk's jokes and conspiracy mongering are in fact malignant, that he might actually be a homophobe or an anti-Semite. But Isaacson is guessing there are more people who haven't made up their minds about Musk's about Musk and are simply fascinated by him and want to understand more. There is, of course, also a built-in fanboy audience for the book, assuming Musk himself doesn't disavow it. And I thought that was pretty on point. I think it's true. I think most people are just curious about him and want to understand him. This is peak McCreesh. I loved it. And then I want to pull up the bit about Michael Lewis, because Michael Lewis, the author, went to high school, went to an elite high school in New Orleans with Walter Isaacson, and McCreesh writes, the writer Michael Lewis was a few grades behind him, referring to Isaacson. This is my first impression of Walter Isaacson, Lewis says. I was in like fifth or sixth grade. They hauled us into the auditorium where we were supposed to just watch Walter on stage so we would be like him one day. It was like the headmaster thought Walter was the example of what a Newman student should be. He was like a senior, maybe. We all found it rather nauseating. A few years after that, Lewis says, we're all ushered back into the auditorium where Walter is once again on stage. At this point, I think he had just gotten the Rhodes Scholarship. Incredibly, Lewis says, it then happened again. This time, he's like the youngest person ever to whatever, a Time magazine or something. By now, there's like vomit running down the aisles. 
I recount this to Isaacson as we pass the school. I love Michael, he says carefully, but I think he makes all narratives more beautiful. I've heard his story about them parading me out at some assembly. This conversation is occurring the same weekend Lewis is embroiled in a controversy over over whether he made some aspects of the narrative of his best-selling book, The Blind Side, a little too dot, 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 beautiful. Mm Mm-hmm. Excellent so good. Writing. Excellent writing. It is. It's such a fun read. It is excellent. Excellent writing. Do you care that Elon Musk is throttling the New York Times? Yeah. Okay. I think Twitter. I think Twitter throttling anything. You're anti-throttling. I'm anti-throttling. I think it goes against what Elon said he was going to make the platform. And by the way, this is just this is like you know, anecdote is not data. But mm-hmm. my feed is worse. I enjoy yeah, my yeah, feed yeah. more under the old regime, under sure. the Stalinist regime of whatever it was, of Sunder woke, Pinchai. Of, yes, yes, um, yes. Yes, so Semaphore reports that since late July, engagement on X posts linking to the New York Times has dropped dramatically. The drop in shares and other engagement on tweets with Times links is abrupt and not reflected in links to similar news organizations, including CNN, The Washington Post, and the BBC. And they basically say it's not clear why. So... If they are pulling the strings from behind, I'm against that. Yeah, and but I think when we talk about what the government ought to do about social media, when people talk about what the government ought to do about social media, and there's a lot of this now talking about AI again and what AI does, content mod- moderation is hard. Uh, making money on these things is hard. All of this stuff is hard. And I think the good news about the struggles of Twitter under Musk is I think it has been proof of, along with, by the way, Meta's many struggles as we go into the big Google antitrust case, is this stuff is hard. And the 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 narrative from three years ago or five years ago about huge tech companies that are going to crush the world and control everybody and do everything, I think it's been made plain now. This stuff is much more challenging and the future is much less certain for these companies than before or otherwise Elon Musk wouldn't be trying to throttle the New York Times on Twitter. Do we have is he going to keep it X? Do I have to yes. learn to say X? Well, part of the Isaacson book is his obsession with the name X. Have but, you seen this? But he might give up and go back. I don't want to have to say X. It's so goofy. I'm there. I'm saying X. You're saying X? Yep, yep. Uh, I'm I, saying X. I, I, I lament. But I guess saying X is easier than saying X, formerly known as Twitter. Because then it's like the artist formerly known as Prince. And we all know he did his best work when he was Prince. It's business time, Chris. Business. Down to business. Down to business. First up, we have Press Forward will award more than $500 million to revitalize local news. Do you want to take? I have a take on this. Tell me your take. Take your take. So the story, which comes from the MacArthur Foundation, and I says, su- uh, the money comes from the MacArthur Foundation, and yeah. well, it's twenty-two foundations, basically a okay. coalition of twenty-two donors today announced Press Forward, a national initiative to strengthen Carnegie, communities and democracy by supporting local Ford news Foundation. and information with an infusion of more than half a billion, uh, more than a half billion dollars over Knight the next Foundation. five years. Press Forward will enhance local journalism at an unprecedented level to recenter local news as a force for community cohesion, support new models and solutions that are ready to scale, and close longstanding inequities in journalism coverage and practice. Okay. Um, if you dig in, and I'll link the Free Beacon story on this, these are all left-wing foundations. Sure. And that's all fine. And I do think my take was— Right-wing right ain't where, funded them. Exactly. Yeah. 
this is where news is going, where it's becoming Patronage. donors yeah. and foundations are going to fund them for their own ideological ends, more or less. Well, and I, they're going to have the tinge of their backers. Well, look, there's a lot of reasons for generally left-leaning bias in journalism. One, and you start from the molecular level, who wants to go into journalism? Yep. Right? Helping people. Compassionate, bleeding-hearted people are often drawn to the business of speaking truth to power. And as I document, in national bestseller, soon to be available in paperback, Broken News, if you did a similar partisan overlay on the energy industry, you'd find it was extraordinarily Republican because of who goes into it and where it's from. So you start with that. And then, to your point here, who are the people that want to fund it? Who are the people that want to be engaged in it? Not right-wingers, right? It's left-wing people. So these are all left-wing foundations that are, are bleeding-hearted, sharing carers who probably don't think that they're advancing a political ideology. They think they're just being helpful. I, my take would be good for them. I, I'm sure there are uh, all of what you say, but somebody's got to do it. And I think there's nothing wrong with patronage journalism. Patronage journalism is not sufficient because you have to have s some part of it has to be independent and self-sustaining for the very reasons that you lay out. But patrons patronize, right? I, I hope right-wing foundations and billionaires decide to dump a half a trillion or half a billion dollars into supporting local news. Everybody ought to jump in the pool because this is really all important. It's real important that we do it. At the same time, motivations don't really matter in journalism. It's either true or it's either not got true. It or it's you good got, reporting yeah. or it's not. You either got and, it or you don't. And by and large, a lot of the reason that these grassroots left-wing initiatives have failed is because they aren't producing the at the at the local level. They dominate at the national level, but at the local level, their attempts to get these things started haven't been super successful. So, we'll see if the, if these are. Everybody get let let 10,000 flowers bloom. Everybody get in the pool. Who's getting out of the pool? The New York City Pension Fund, which I was surprised to learn was a News Corp shareholder. They're suing Fox News over election falsehoods and damage to the stock. I, this is included only to say the we've talked about the lawsuits, we've talked about the settlement, we've talked about the firings, we've talked about the up the more litigation to come, the the termination of Viet Din, their counselor, their counsel, and the big payout that they gave him. This thing is just a it just keeps bleeding, right? My thought on this. And by the way, the Smartmatic case is still ongoing. That don't I don't I know it, Eliana Johnson, um, that deponent Chris Steyerwald is aware that this is that the Dominion settlement was the beginning and not the end of this for Fox News and News, the News Corporation. Yep. And this is far from over. This thing is going to have a long, long tail. And in terms of the dismissals, again, like Tucker Carlson's dismissal, whether or not it was connected, Viet Dinh's dismissal, um, oh, this is not... probably also the beginning did and we not the end. Did we talk about Tucker Carlson's interview with the Obama drug I didn't romp watch accuser? it. I didn't watch it. Just as an aside here, I, I, I second what many people said about that, which is it is a fair point of criticism to say that 
this is what people did with Brett Kavanaugh's accuser. What was the last one? Julie Swetnick. That well, look at what they did with Julie Swetnick. Okay, that's that's fair. That's fair comment. Doesn't mean you should imitate that, right? That do, that doesn't mean that that's good behavior to imitate just because somebody else did something bad. I also never thought I would say this, but it does show that Fox was like something of an institutional oh. restraint. <laughs> oh, <laughs> even though the whole story about Fox was the institutional restraints well, are gone and, after and here, after Roger Ailes here's, died. But... Here's more Musk content, which is the idea that it's like we'll get him over here and we'll just let it let it go off, and you end up with a, a fizzle of a Trump interview, and then. You have the the next blockbuster is, wait, what? The former president, what? And what if it was true? I don't get it. Anyway, how come nobody, how come everybody hates Chuck Todd? I like Chuck Todd. Well, um, what, so the, the left and a certain category of the left, here's Kevin Cruz on Twitter, who is, I, I'm not super familiar with what he does, but he is sort of a an anti-Trump left Twitter X. I'm sorry. I'm going to reform myself today. Today, I pledge myself a star on X of the anti-Trump X community bagging on the ouster of the long, speaking of having a long tail, it took them forever to fire Chuck Todd. Like, they, it seems like they've been they've been taking that show away from Chuck Todd for there were, five there were years. There many, many stories about it. And the truth is, like, but he said, but if, he says, just he says, our long national nightmare is I mean, over. Please, yeah, yeah, it's really gonna. These Sunday shows are gonna come back to relevance. And who's replacing him? Kristen, well, I mean, exactly, Kristen Welker. She's good. She's fine. But the truth is, the Sunday shows don't matter anymore, and it doesn't. You know, Chuck Todd had a difficult job in terms of like trying to maintain the relevance of this sh- of of any Sunday show, any of these anchors. Well, they're Nobody they're no more their important names than anymore. any. They're no more important than any other exactly. TV show. And they don't have convening power anymore, and it doesn't really matter who hosts them. The I think the left hates Chuck Todd so much because they think that he was too both sides ish and did not. Well, that's ridiculous. Provide the adequate payload of Tapperite outrage to to satisfy the to palpate the outrage glands of the very online consumers of this content. And I, w- what I felt bad about for Chuck Todd. He climbed the greasy pole to finally, after years at NBC, to finally be the guy, right? They had to sink David Gregory. Who else did they burn through at Meet the Press after Tim Russert? It was just David Gregory. Chuck Todd was a grind, and he pushed through, and he made it, and he got the the prize. Through reporting. Yeah. You know, not his television. Demeanor, not his great on-air persona. reporting. But also through office politics, right? And the the tragedy of David Gregory, who was humiliated by his employer before he was eventually dumped and all of that stuff. And then Chuck Todd, they built out as this huge vertical inside NBC. He had a daily show on MSNBC. He had the podcast. He had the Sunday show. And it was this huge presence for Meet the Press. And then they just hacked it off piece by piece until finally they unhorsed him at Meet the Press. And I thought, I mean, just be cool, right? Like if you don't want if you if you don't want to hang out anymore, just just say bye. You don't have to you don't have to go to the friend zone. Don't put Chuck Todd in the friend zone. I'm glad that we're moving to our facile file mm. and then to 
food and style. But first, in our facile file, yes, we have a story from Wired. Preferring biological children is immoral. Oh. Most people say <laughs> Who they knew? want their kids to be their own genetic offspring. But such a desire is in conflict with other evolving values around parenting and family. Well, wait till you have a kid that looks nothing like you. This was a cookie find. And kudos, and kudos to him for this piece in Wired. What makes it so facile is what? Who would want that? And I'm not saying... Right, that there is a moral equivalence, or uh, the, I'm I'm not passing a moral judgment on people who want to adopt or if they don't want to, whatever they want to do. But the idea that you cannot imagine why a person would feel, why would anybody feel that way? Who would want such a thing as that? And it's such a duh. Like this is this is a very. I want to say this is a. I don't know. Is this a three? This is a two thousand word, twenty five hundred word essay that asks a really obvious question, which is, why do people want bi their own biological children? I don't know. Maybe the species. Maybe we are hardwired in our evolutionary biology to want to pass on our genetic material. And so maybe lay off. You shouldn't prefer your own children to anybody else's children, right? Yeah. Like maybe you shouldn't maybe, care about them more. You shouldn't want to protect them more. You shouldn't want more for them than for anybody else's children. Maybe chill with that wired. All right. I don't like that story as much as this next one. Do um, you? Thank you, New York Times. A field guide to the great hot dogs of America. I love hot dogs. Oh, hey, here oh we are. Look gosh. at us in accord. Love it. I didn't think we. I, I didn't think this is where we'd bag land. Of beef is not for me, but a bag of hot dogs would be for me. From New York's all-beef classic to Alaska's reindeer-driven rendition, here are 15 supremely local versions that flaunt the bounty to be found on a bun. I La love hot dogs. Last this week. This first one looks so good. Last week, we talked about the Washington Post's poorly pizza. executed effort. These all look so amazing. On pizza. Oh, my gosh. This well, Puerto everything Rican that, one that has... Everything. What do you call these? French fries? No. These are potatoes. Like, oh, the potato sticks. They like sti the canned. Potato sticks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the planter's potato that's sticks. That's genius. Okay. But everything that the Washington Post did wrong, the New York Times did right. Including pictures. Including great. There's a picture for everything. Great art. And so the, the their, their dog are, they got the New York dog, all beef, sauerkraut, brown mustard, they put relish on it, which There's is not one of these that I wouldn't. Which eat. is gross. The Texas Tommy. Oh, what? I love relish. Not with kraut. Oh, but I would have both. Gross. Oh, I love. Uh, the Texas Tommy from the Delaware Valley bacon and cheese. Fine. We got no. I've had it. Oh, no I beef. Love it. Then my favorite, the slaw dog, the West Virginia hot dog, which they say is from the South, which is wrong. It's from Appalachia, but we understand. But they correctly rooted in West Virginia, and they even get it right about its sauce, not chili. It's excellent. Try the King Tut drive-in. Or if you are if you get the chance, Jim's drive-in outside of Lewisburg, West Virginia. The Puerto Rican-style dog, no topping spared. And it's got, what is Yeah, the crunchy potato stick. The Sonor that one I'm most excited about. The Sonoran dog from Tucson. It's good. I've had it. I've, I think I've... Not me. I think I've... I, I, I've have I had all of these? A ripper from North Jersey. Yes, the deep fried hot dog. Not my favorite. Have you had the reindeer dog in Alaska? Never had a reindeer dog. Didn't think so. Okay, but have you ever had a New York system wiener? The Rhode Island. Mm -mm. Uh, yeah, the New York system wiener is a real, like, 
be ready. Like they're tasty. Chris's stomach just growled, by the way. Yeah, I am hungry. It's true. <laughs> but be ready if you're going to have a New York system wiener. It's, have you had this cheese coney? Um, well, hold on. Don't skip ahead of the Chicago sorry, dog. Sorry. Overrated Chicago, much like the Cubs. An, oh, the Chicago dog Ooh. gets way too much, way too much attention. It's fine, but it's too complicated. Half smoke from D.C., not my favorite. Do you like a half smoke? Uh, I haven't had that. Basically, it's a kind of a Polish sausage with a bean chili on top. It's just. I'm not really um, actually a fan of chili on dogs. Uh, the cheese coney from Cincinnati, yes. I'm a yes. I'm a. Mm. You, you've had Skyline chili. Yeah, but okay. I, I don't like Skyline. Ch- I mean, look, I'll eat. When I say I don't like, I mean, it wouldn't be my order if I went to the restaurant, but. There are very few things that I wouldn't eat. So, Kenji, I, I have had a Seattle dog with the cream cheese on it and found it no. not not, not that great. One I, I but mean. Kenji Lopez-Alt recently has piqued my interest in trying it again because he described the way that it could be done, that it was really okay. good. So I'm, like, opening myself to it. The Coney, which is different than the New York, which is another thing popularized. A lot of this, I'll, I swear I'll shut up, but... A lot of this comes from the prevalence of Greek immigrants in the United States a century or so ago that coincided with the explosion of the hot dog with the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis, the popularity of the hot dog, and then regional specialties in places like Detroit, in Appalachia, around the country, in Cincinnati. And the Coney dog from Michigan is a very specific kind of thing. I've not... Oh. Other than the reindeer dog, I've also not had the bologna dog of the Jewish delis of Baltimore. I'm here for it because it looks like it's griddled, which I'm all for. Okay. Have I said enough about hot dogs now to last us? Chris, that brings us to our style section for the week. And there's no Bethany Frankel this week, but there is a lawmaker by the name of Lauren Boebert who was escorted out of the Beetlejuice musical in Denver after, quote, causing a disturbance, according to the Denver Post. And the Post writes, U.S. Rep. Lauren Boebert was escorted out of a Sunday night performance of the Beetlejuice musical in downtown Denver, accused by venue officials of vaping, singing, recording, and causing a disturbance during the performance. Drew Sexton, the campaign manager for Boebert, told the Post, Uh, post that the second term congresswoman denied vaping during the show she did use her cell phone to take a picture of the performance unaware that photos weren't allowed i don't know sounds this sounds okay to me so i think that the style question here is an etiquette question about public vaping in the theater that's a no that's a clear no right there's no there's no context in which that's okay right I'm against public vaping. I have a lot of people who do it in the office. In open spaces in the office or in a closed office? In open spaces. I'm like generally okay with it. Okay. I think you, but I, you, you would agree a theater is the wrong venue. I do, but I still don't think it's like so awful. But yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, this isn't like taking your socks off on an airplane. And I, I just, I do want to say, remember, Flip-flops are not okay. I just, I will, I will say flip-flops are not okay. I guess, I guess unless you're going to wear them with socks, then I will, then you can wear flip-flops with socks. Uh, and those socks that have like the space between yeah, the, the special, big toe. Yeah, that, the... <laughs> that's, that's real kicked out of Beetlejuice mm-hmm. on a Sunday night in Denver for vaping and causing a disturbance energy. If you have special thong s- socks with a split big toe 
so that you can continue to rock your flip-flops even when it's chilly out. So I think that I think those things belong in a style that's a milieu, a style a style milieu. I will say I wouldn't think that vaping would would get you thrown out of a theater. I wouldn't think it's not like you know being on your phone and emitting light all over the place. That's more annoying, I think. I I, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Okay, right in. Tell okay. it, tell us what you think. The next one I do have strong feelings about. Okay, let's go. Corporate goths are wearing their fishnets and eyeliner to work and they're not apologizing <laughs> for expressing themselves. Oh boy. And the pictures are something to behold. The tag corporate goth, writes Business Insider, has more than 25 million views on TikTok, and it's filled with get ready with me videos featuring fishnet stockings and a lot of black. A lot of Gen Zers feel more drawn by the mission of a company and what their goal is as opposed to things like salary, Michael Yan, a founder of the job job search platform Simplify, told Insider in November. My boss has been a huge fan from day one, Rose said. She stops by my office every shift so she can see my outfits and has continuously fought for my freedom of expression at work. Okay. Hannah Rose, 26, we should point out, is wearing full face white kiss makeup with (laughs) uh, blackout eyes. She's wearing white face. Yeah, she's wearing white face. Hannah Rose is. And she's a university secretary. And I want to say that's that's good that you're not in the private sector. Ariam Guerrero is not goth. Hardly at all. She's well-dressed in a lace. That is not office-appropriate dress, Chris. Chris is like, she looks awesome in a black lace it's, mini. It's not a mini. Uh, uh, depending on what's her job. She's and a, boots. She's a, she's a, <laughs> Chris's she, assistant is laughing his head off. He's, my, he's not my assistant. Totally he's not my assistant. Nate, Nate Moore is not my assistant. He is my colleague. She does not. She looks ready for the strip club. That is not. Fair. She is a Los Angeles-based styling assistant. Yeah, Uh, sounds about right. But my point is that she is not wearing white full-face makeup. She is, yes, not dressed for. She is not dressed for Easter brunch, but she. It doesn't seem inappropriate. And Madison (laughs) Stone, which is clearly a made-up name, Madison Stone seems a Southern California beauty. What is it? Stone, a Southern California-based beauty advisor. Now her job includes she looks she looks fine, and she has a she she has a job that requires a name tag and wearing a headset. She looks fine. I don't. Yeah, she looks fine. I think I think one of these things is not like the others. Unlike the girl in lace, this one is wearing stockings, so that's more appropriate. I I don't know what the rules around that are. My point here is that lumping these three things together, like. There's this trend, and one of them looks like Gene Simmons, and the other two <laughs> look a little look look a little Wednesday Adamsy. Is uh, insider you you have category error here? Okay, that brings us to our obsessions of the week, where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. Chris, mine is an obvious one, which is this. Virginia candidate for the House of Delegates by the name of Susanna Gibson. And we're going to to be family friendly. I don't know if that is the name she went by in her X-rated side hustle where she and her husband husband performed various X-rated acts acts for quote unquote tips 
by request on a live stream. Which is legal and... It's apparently legal. Perfectly fine. Uh, like, I, the, it's a hold choice. Hold on. Okay. Okay. It is, it is legal. And there are sites that cater to this on which she live stream, including during her campaign, in the first months of her campaign. And we remember the lady who, Katie Porter, who we talked about here, whose husband... No, it's not Katie Porter. No, no. It was um, Oh, Katie... yeah. No, sorry, Katie Porter. No, 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 no. Katie. Uh, Katie Hill. Katie Hill. She stepped down. The former but congresswoman that, that involved from... AIDS. Well, and, and it involved her husband trying to smear her. Yes. This is... She and her husband. This was all consensual. Consensually were engaging. In, they were having Congress with one another and posting it and getting money for it. Yes, exactly. So these videos were archived on another site and news reports covered the fact that she had engaged in this side hustle. And now Gibson says that news coverage drawing attention to this according to the New York Times, is a sex crime. And they are they are asking the FBI to investigate, citing Virginia's revenge porn law. Gibson's attorney, Daniel P. Watkins, said that disseminating the videos is a violation of Virginia's revenge porn law, which makes it a crime to maliciously disseminate or sell nude or sexual images of another person with the intense, intent to coerce, harass, or intimidate. This was part of an opposition research document brought to the Beacon. Speaking of oppo research. Before this story came out. And I took a look at it and said, eh, I'm not really interested in that story. Consenting adults, yeah. And then I read the New York Times story where it had been covered in the Washington Post. The yep. fact that she did this. Yes. And then I read the New York Times coverage of her story where she said, covering the story is a violation of the law. Drawing attention to these images and videos is a violation of law. This is revenge porn. And I was so exercised that we did do a story on it. Today, The Beacon has an editorial where we have just published the entire opposition research document without covering any of her parts, anybody's parts. Oh, well. Because I think this is such gaslighting of the public. This is of obvious public interest to voters that she was engaging in this during the campaign. I think, look, if you're her, there are a lot of ways to respond. One is, we were doing, this is perfectly legal. That's yeah, cool. I love we my were making husband a and we are making a buck on the side. Yeah. The other one is, you know what? I wish we hadn't have done it, especially during the opening months of a campaign when we knew the public scrutiny would be on us. It was a mistake. The third is. I'll sue you. The yeah. third is this one. Yeah. And I think either of the first two are totally fine. This one is absurd. It is a matter of obvious public interest. And voters, voters might say, I think it's great that she did this. They might decide it's wonderful. They might. The others, voters of, the voters of Richmond may might say, decide they don't want a representative in the House of Delegates. It who was, was making ball. money in this way. You know way. what? It was a Virginia legislative can uh, crystal ball who got in trouble because of a sex toy joke and, and some much, much less revealing photos that were posted of her. Virginia has a has a track record on these kinds of election scandals. But the idea that covering this, writing about it, drawing attention to her behavior while a candidate for office is ridiculous. Yeah. And 
The other interesting aspect of the story is that we went to post this, our original story about it on, on X, X and received a notice that we must take the tweet of our story down lest our account be locked. So we could not tweet anymore. About this. We could not X anymore, send X anymore. You were throttled. So I told the, you know, we talked as a staff and said, well, let's take the, t- the X down so that we can continue Xing. Yes. Whatever. And, uh, and. You don't want to X the X. No. Right. And. Over some X. Have tried to get Elon Musk's attention to this with thus far without success, but it is ridiculous that X is throttling this story. Well, and not allowing people to read about it. Content moderation is hard. It's ridiculous. It's hard to moderate content so, and not get sued. So just remember. Um, well, we welcome the lawsuit. We welcome the lawsuit. We do not here uh, at Free Beacon welcomes the lawsuit from Ms. Gibson over. We can over, only pay in hot dogs. We welcome dogs. the revenge porn lawsuit. We can only pay in hot dogs over, over here. This. So please direct yeah. all inquiries elsewhere. Okay. My obsession is you'll be surprised to learn about polls. People pick on Jen Rubin a lot at the Washington Post. I'm not going to pick on her, but I I want to offer half agreement. She wrote a piece, I don't write about polls. You shouldn't bother with them either. And she says, you might have noticed that I studiously have avoided dissecting the avalanche of 2024 polls. I don't plan on deviating from this approach, at least not until mid-2024. And you should consider ignoring the nonstop flood of polling and the rickety analysis uh, dependent on it. Here are five reasons we should all go on a poll-free political diet for at least six months. First of all, how you gonna how you gonna do that? You're going to it's everywhere, right? It's in the water. But here here's the truth. There is she's very right about something. There's a very lazy strain of political analysis. Now I do both. I do analysis of what's going on, and I do. Voter analysis, right? I want, I care about the polls. I care about the demographic characteristics of the electorate. I care about all that stuff, but I also try to pay attention to what's really happening. So here's a convenient trope. And bear, tell me if this sounds familiar to you. Well, whatever blank is doing, it's not working because look at his position in the polls. Or Blank needs to do something very different because look at their position in the polls, right? This is often, you hear it on TV, you read it in analysis, passes for analysis, right? So they say, I don't know. I guess it's, I guess whatever they're doing isn't working because they're only at 5% in the polls. So they better do something dramatically different. This fundamentally misunderstands what polling does. And she alludes to this in here, but I think doesn't give it enough credit. Analysis predicated on a straight line projection of where polls are is bad analysis, right? If, if the whole concept is this is how things are and it's static is bad analysis because what polls are, and we use this term a lot, it's a snapshot. It's a moment in time about where we are right now. And the idea that we should not think about polling at all is insulting to the intelligence of voters and is insulting to the ability of analysts to talk about things. There's bad poll analysis. There's bad polls. I mean, the the share of garbage polling that's out there is large, right? Nate Moore and I, mostly Nate, every week spend a lot of time trying to find high-end, worthwhile polls that we share because we don't share when you subscribe to Starmold on Politics at the Dispatch, available every Saturday in your inbox. The the We don't share bad polls. 
Or if we have to share imperfect polls, we say, now you should know that this poll is kind of skanky. We, it's, it's hard to do. But what the polls, well, what we're looking for, what I'm looking for is, what are the changes in the polls? Who's up? Who's down? What's the direction? And what's the stuff underneath? Straight line projections, it doesn't tell us anything about what things will be like in February to know what things are like today. But it is useful for tracking what's changing and what's moving. And I think I, I know our readers and our listeners are grown up enough to understand that. And I don't think we should pretend like we can protect them from something that's already out there. I think this is a more information is better than trying to stifle it. Don't, don't throttle the polls. Understand them. Chris, that brings us to my favorite portion of the show, Here we which go. is reader mail. And this is a wonderful note from Jeff. I'm going to mispronounce this. Jeff Zieski, Jeff Zieski in look. Bloomington, Minnesota, which this is a one stone's of your throw from my hometown. And Jeff writes, hey, Eliana and Chris, really enjoy the show and hearing your thoughts on the media. I have Jeff. a story from Eliana's hometown. And I thought this might be an interesting, even if not surprising, topic for an episode. MinPost, a Minnesota online newspaper, has turned comments off on all their posts. Right on. They found some stats on their commenters that I thought were pretty surprising. Of the 19,000 comments reviewed from the last year, 55% were from 20 <laughs> people and 77% from only 50 people. I have included the Twitter thread from their editor and the post about why from their site, Keep Up the Great Work. Jeff, we are going to include both of those in our newsletter. I loved that. Uh, so I think he pronounces his last name Zesky. Zesky, okay. But I, but Mr. Zesky or Zesky or how, however you pronounce it, please tell us. Great point. I know that other people, and the dispatch certainly has a different policy on this by trying to cultivate and curate a respectful, useful community of users online. And I dig it, and I get the community part of it. But I don't read the comments. No. Don't read the comments. You know why I don't read the comments? I spent hours working on this thing. You spent 30 seconds after you read the headline, and you were like, well, why don't you do X? How come? Well, I shouldn't say X. Uh, why, why don't you do such and so? How come you don't talk about this? And you're like, well, I didn't want to. And why would I? And I, like, for individuals who want to interact with each other about content, I guess it's okay. But for me as the writer of it, I finish the piece, I move on. I don't want to go hang out with people who, especially when they're pseudonymous, right? When they're, when they're writing under fake names that are, can, and so you just don't like, it's, that's a, that's a no from me, Mr. Zesky. Our next note is from Austin B. in Denver, Colorado, and Austin writes, Eliana, I realize I'm a bit late in terms of when the episode aired, but I wanted to send you a note on the New Haven discussion from the prior episode. Aside from the fact that I'm a loyal, sort of, Columbia alum and therefore feel quite comfortable engaging in some lighthearted Yale bashing, I have a funny personal connection to the topic. While I was in grad school at Columbia, I was also the company commander for the local Marine Reserve Unit in New Haven. Cool. Our unofficial unit moniker was and remains to be, I'm told, gun wave in New Haven. <laughs> to be clear, it was not a reference to us waving our service weapons about in the air since we take weapons safely fairly seriously in the Corps. Most of the Marines in the unit were local guys, many of them police officers of some kind, local guys, state troopers, marshals, etc., to underscore the gun wave in part, very simply, one of my sergeants had been shot while working as a local New Haven police officer. He was fine. Something he Love had avoided it. during a combat tour in Iraq. 
Thank you for continuing to provide such a wonderful podcast, which is the highlight of my week. If you could please ask Chris to stop bashing Burger King, I'd appreciate it as it pays my bills, which happen to include my dispatch subscription. It's a fine and honest burger and far exceeds the quality of the Big Mac. Austin, awesome letter. uh, Thank you for your service. Awesome. And he includes a picture here of their T-shirt. I love that. It's so great. First of all, awesome. Thank you. That's great. Thank you for your service. All of that stuff. My point about Burger King is this. It's a real roll of the dice, Austin. I'm not saying it's bad. I enjoy a Whopper. I think Whopper's I've never great. had a bad chicken sandwich there. I've that had long, some weird I've had some like chicken sandwich. I've had some very Oh, well the old school chi- burger so chicken, chicken sandwich the, on the Long John mm. bun is fabulous. No question with the and shredded lettuce. Rings. And a lot of what Burger King's getting done is lettuce based. They've got great fluffy lettuce with the mayo on the Whopper. I I've I'm pro Whopper. I'm just saying it's a real roll of the dice because you don't know what much like a Hardee's Am I getting clean, prompt, healthy, friendly, efficient, or are we going through the wormhole here? Are we going into an interesting space? And, I mean, I'm here for it. I'm just saying McDonald's has been able to maintain uh, more uniform standards. I think that's fair to say. Next up, our final letter is from Wren in North Carolina. Okay. Ren writes, hello, Chris and Eliana. I want you to know that I've been waiting to hear my first welcome in since you brought this Uh up a few months ago. I've imagined walking into some heady environment, maybe a coffee or music shop with a bearded man smiling at me (laughs) and speaking welcome in in Chris's voice. As the weeks went by, I forgot all about the phrase. I'm a pilot, and last night I was working the radio on a flight from DCA to Madison, Wisconsin. At 34,000 feet over Lake Michigan, I checked in with Chicago Air Traffic Control. The response, good evening, flight 5212. Descend and maintain flight level 240. Welcome in. Oh, I turned to the other pilot and asked if he had ever heard anyone say welcome in before. He had not. I informed him it was a new thing people are doing and to watch out for it. Love the podcast. Ren, you just made Chris's week. Ren, ever vigilant, right? Yes. Ever vigilant against added fluff words stuffed into normal communication. Thank you, Ren. You did make I will day. say it may be an East Coast thing because yeah. this is all I hear anymore. It's a, all I hear it's is welcome a in. Corporate speak training exercise. Okay. Well I don't even ever hear welcome. I just hear welcome in. Welcome in. Welcome in. That's welcome, all I get. Welcome in. How about welcome out? How about welcome over? It's just welcome. All you have to say. It's just well, one word I get and it's in. sufficient. And it's so you know what it's like? It's like the Kardashians. It is affectation that they think makes it seem fancier and only makes it seem obviously less cool and less good and harder to understand. It is the it is the greeting version of vocal fry. Well, Chris is available for corporate consultations. Wouldn't that be for a corporate doozy? Corporate trainings. Wouldn't that be a doozy? If you're interested. Be a short course. <laughs> that brings us to Chris's favorite time of the week. When I am forced to say something nice. But Chris, you are going to lead by example. And we have a, our favorite items. We have week. a special edition of our faves here because it's a double barreled New York Times. Nick Kristoff writing in the New York Times in a fabulous piece 
says this, American liberals have led the campaign to reduce child poverty since Franklin Roosevelt, and it's a proud legacy. But we have long had a blind spot. We are often reluctant to acknowledge one of the significant drivers of child poverty, the widespread breakdown of the family, for fear that to do so would be patronizing or racist. Good on you. As we started out talking with David Ignatius, I really admire people who can blow the whistle on their own team and who can take ownership of their own biases. This piece is great. It is buttressed by the work of Naomi Schaefer Riley, my colleague here at the American Enterprise Institute, and so much of the work that is done here about how important families are to child welfare, about what an important bulwark—I'm bulwarking too much here—but what what an important readout against poverty and human misery functional families are. And this is just a great piece and very self-aware and very good. And I hope I hope that people, I hope the New York Times readership takes it to heart. My favorite piece was in the New York Times from Michael Powell. The great Michael Powell. His piece was headlined, DEI statements stir debate on college campuses. And it is about the role of the required DEI statements in hiring. And it is a long piece, but fascinating and about how these one-page statements are required from most schools and about their role in the process and talks about how the UC schools for a time were looking at these one-page statements before even getting to the substance of the applications. And oftentimes applicants were dismissed on the basis of their DEI statements, despite what credentials they may have had for the jobs. And he takes one case in particular of a candidate who submitted a good DEI statement, but There was a protest at UCLA over this particular candidate's statement on a podcast years past about his objection to being forced to write such statements. And it is a fascinating look at this. And he writes, a decade ago, California university officials faced a conundrum. A majority of its students were non-white and officials wanted to recruit more black and Latino professors. But California voters had banned affirmative action in 1996. So in 2016, at least five campuses, Berkeley, Davis, Irvine, Riverside, and Santa Cruz decided their hiring committees could perform an initial screening of candidates based only on diversity statements. Candidates who did not look outstanding on diversity, the vice provost at UC Davis instructed search committees, could not advance, no matter the quality of their academic research. Credentials and experience would be examined in a later round. The championing of diversity at the University of California resulted in many campuses rejecting disproportionate numbers of white and Asian American applicants. Mm. In this way, the battle over diversity statements in faculty hiring carries echoes of the battle over affirmative action and admissions, which opponents say discriminated against Asians. And it is another way of looking at this problem that bedevils our college campuses and corporations across the country that is wonderfully done. And and this is, it is wonderfully done and thoughtful. And I would, I would further say, this is not just a right-wing talking point, right? There's a real stifling throttling that's going on here about discourse. And the other part that's important is this is a public institution, right? Well, he says, because it's a public institution, it was subject to the state's ban on affirmative action. And they were using these as a workaround. And I, I don't want to give too much credence. I don't I don't want to give excessive credence to the this criticism, but this is not exactly establishment of religion, but it is a creedal it is it is forcing a creed onto 
individual Americans. It is the go- it is a government entity forcing a creed onto people as a condition of employment. And we didn't like it when during the red scares of the early and middle 20th century, we didn't like it when people had to vow that they were not communists. Or we now understand that making people take oaths other than to the Constitution in order to obtain government services or employment is is problematic. This is too, right? Forcing people to accept a creed as a condition of government employment is really problematic. And it's kudos to the Times and kudos again to Michael Powell. I'll just close on this where Powell writes, the entire process has long troubled a number of senior faculty members at Berkeley. If you write, I believe that everyone should be treated equally, you will be branded as a right winger. Binod Agarwal, a political science professor at the university, said in an interview, this is compelled speech, plain and simple. So that is the news we have about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. Or a hot dog. Or a hot dog. And sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcast.com. And if you have the time, please leave us a written review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.